Because if I can keep my finger on the pulse on the care teams, the clinical teams, the administrative team that supports the care teams, then I'm going to be better able to indirectly support and keep my finger on the pulse on the patient because they're the ones that keep the finger on the pulse on the patient, sometimes literally. You're listening to Lead Through Values, where America's Chief Culture Officer, James Mayhew, helps you create a high-performance workplace by building strong leaders, enhancing communication, and accelerating productivity. And now, here's your host, James Mayhew. Well, welcome back to Lead Through Values. I'm your host, James Mayhew, and America's Chief Culture Officer. And today, this podcast. Well, as as all podcasts are, all episodes, I want this to be about helping you know how to build a high-performance workplace and create a culture of execution excellence. Now, one of the things that I like to do is bring in a guest from time to time, and today I have a wonderful guest, a very special guest that uh, is in the healthcare industry, and her name is Ann Richardson. Anne is a visionary and transformative healthcare consultant. She is often referred to as the doctor whisperer because of her tenacious commitment to improving the healthcare industry. I got to ask more about that in a second. Uh, Anne works with administrators and clinicians, helping them deliver the highest possible patient care through program development and training, leadership development, and operational effectiveness. A fierce patient advocate, Anne is passionate about being a voice for frontline workers to implement their ideas for improving patient care. Uh, Anne and I became acquainted through LinkedIn, and I think that's a lot because we have very like-minded views on what it takes to create a high-performance workplace and our mutual desire for developing elite performers who also then exemplify great leadership through strong values, morals, and ethics. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. I'm happy to be here, and thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I have been looking forward to this. Uh, I knew early on after we uh, uh, connected and we and we had left some messages on each other or comments on each other's posts on LinkedIn, you were a person that I would want to know, I want to learn more from. And, you know, we spent um, uh, getting to know each other here over the past couple of months. We spent some time, um, you know, talking about a podcast and what we might do. One of the things that came out that I thought was just really um, fascinating to me is how bold and courageous you are as as a person who speaks truth. So I'm just going to toss it your way, Anne. Why why is speaking truth or what or the how, any of those pieces of that, why is that such an essential leadership quality? So that's a, that's a good question, and that's um, important to me of who I am at the core and how I have been successful at formally or informally leading people is um, one of the most important things, particularly if you're involved in an organization as I have been and been recruited at times to come in and do some heavy lifting on change management projects and so forth, is as quickly as you can earning the trust and respect of the team at every level, those above you, those that you're working alongside with and those that you are, um, that your subordinates that you're directing. And you must be authentic. And so authenticity, you need to be truthful. Now, I mean, truthful to a point, um, you don't have to be incredibly raw with all of your details, although sometimes I can be. But I think that even when I've been in organizations where I would have a manager that reported to me, said, you're going to have a tough time with our workforce, they're tough. And then days later, he would say to me, and this is an example 
from an organization in Boston. Oh my God, I, I, I thought you were going to have a difficult time with them, uh, given the demographic culture, whatever the case may be, but boy, they followed your lead. And, and that's because I take the time to do a lot of listening and observing, as they say, um, big eyes, big ears, small mouth. Um, and it's not just a one-time thing, oh, you're on boarding and you want to make a good impression. It's day in, day out. It's, it's uh, really, and I pride myself, I can say, of um, interacting with some, say, difficult physicians or surgeons that were labeled difficult and uh, went in with a big heart, because that's the other thing is really loving your workforce and giving them the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes getting into the weeds and knowing what questions to ask or just listening. And often um, you'd get the response very quickly. And that's where the doctor whisperer came and said, oh my God, you get it. Thank you. Mm. Um, you know, this is an interesting thing because if I'm going to the hospital because either I am ill or someone I care about is ill. I mean, this is a worst day moment for me, right? It could be, it could be devastatingly bad, or it could be just that I'm fearful. I'm not feeling well, or somebody like a child or a parent, um, a sibling, whatever it is, I'm there for them. And, um, one of the things that you talk a lot about is just being a, an advocate for patient care, but the patient care extends beyond just the the person who isn't feeling well. It extends right into the family, right? Yes, and and one of the things that I speak of often and write about is there's the phrase um, patient centric model that most healthcare organizations and systems use, and that's terrific because we should be patient centered. As an administrator, I'm extremely clinically savvy, but I'm not a clinician. But I'm clinically savvy because in order for me to really understand, not 100%, because unless I'm a surgeon or a nurse, I wouldn't 100%, but understand what the needs of the care team are. So if you advocate for the care team with respect and listen to them and support them, um, then you actually are a patient-centric organization. So uh, it's really important to me as an administrator to I pride myself on not being an armchair manager. And what I mean by that is, yes, I need to do forecasts and budgets and variance reports and all those good things. But I'm better able at doing that very efficiently because I find myself that being embedded as often as I have been in my career in the clinical setting, whether it's an inpatient, whether it's uh, in the operating room or in clinics, wherever I was directing, um, I'd have a much better understanding of the variances and the vagaries of volume or the workforce, uh, workflows and whatnot. And so I could better go to my desk and I could efficiently go to my desk at night and uh, respond to some of the inquiries because I was living it every day alongside my team. There's something that's so important about being proximate, getting close to the front line and, and being involved um, and seeing the dynamics that are happening, um, seeing the, the struggles or the things that are working well, it's just huge. Um, you know, a, a few minutes ago, before we actually hit the record button, we were talking about um, somebody that you admire and that you look up to, um, uh, who, who speaks truth, who speaks with uh, the style and a leadership style that that really caters to you. Who was that? And, and what what did you want to touch on with that? So that's a good question, because a lot of people ask me who were my mentors in healthcare. And sadly, I struggle with that. I struggle mm. with that because I've seen some really good leadership and I've seen some poor leadership. And I say people in leadership roles may have a leadership title, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a leader. That's and I grew true. up in a family where my dad 
um, was a big sports fan. So at a very young age, I, and I was the youngest of a big family. And uh, so I grew up watching NCAA sports, the NFL, major league baseball and so forth. So I grew very fond of teams, not necessarily based on their winning results, but based on uh, the leadership and the class act of the coach. So when I was very, very young, it, it was, you know, uh, the Tom Landry's from the Dallas Cowboys. And it was uh, John Wooden, you know, UCLA. It was Coach K from Duke who just uh, um, retired. But the other right. person who I really respect and admire is Tony Dungy. And Tony Dungy um, coached for 12, 13 plus years, Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFL. Um, and he also Indianapolis coached. And then his early career, he was a, I think a defensive coordinator for the Steelers. And I followed his, his career. And he's also a, a published author. Um, but what I love about him is he talks about the secret success for good leadership comes from making the lives of your team and your workers better. So I, I write and I talk a lot about bench strength. So I've seen CEOs who have amazing vision and strategy. And I've been drawn to that and was recently recruited for a position where it was all about that, but he didn't have any bench. And he and I talked about that, you know, and he didn't have a bench for a wide variety of reasons. Sometimes it could be difficult to recruit to a certain geographic area, whatever the case may be, but you could have the best coach in the world, the best CEO, but if you don't have bench strength, and you don't have like-minded people who are all about respecting and earning the trust of your team, it's going to be really hard to execute. Now, you just this morning shared an article with me uh, that you had um, on LinkedIn, and it was um, it was it was around the concept of empathy. I believe that empathy is a huge driver for innovation. I, I think some of the best products that we've ever invented, uh, maybe every great product has been somewhere out of a, out of a sense of empathy. I have a, I have a business client right now, uh, that is, uh, in the medical device industry and they innovated a product. They designed a product in conjunction with a world renowned surgeon who was kind of regarded as like the, the, the surgical leader, the expert in this area. And they started a business in 2004 out of their garage. And it, it's a, I mean, it's just a remarkable client to work with. And one of the things that we talk a lot about with as we gone through a, um, their cultural attributes exercise is how does empathy drive us? And one of the things that was talked about was um, uh, one of the engineers, one of the product engineers was at a, uh, a fitting recently. He came back and I said, what did you learn? And this became the whole topic for our training that day. The, the mom was, was terrified. You know, uh, here's a condition. She doesn't see hope for that child's future. And we started to latch on and grasp on that. And, and how does that impact you? So talk to me about empathy and, and maybe also like the, the article that you were sharing. And, and I'm going to take this then back to the story, um, at some point of you holding a child's hand in surgery, but, but let's start with the empathy thing and, and your view. So I um, am naturally an empathetic person, um, and I think that if you have empathy at the core, and there's a few other things that I believe that help you in a leadership role, um, as leaders, we follow as well, but also people follow you. We work together as a team. So we're followers right. as much as we have people that follow us. So empathy is huge to me. Compassion, especially if you're in healthcare. We see a lot of situations where our workforce are very uh, strained 
because of the nature of the service they provide and the patients that we care for. So, and I'm also extremely passionate about my work and giving back and making a difference in the lives of our patients through the care team. Um, and I believe a lot in having the love for our, our team and our kindness, but, um, but I've all, but I've also worked for leaders at an executive level who um, were not empathetic and actually vocalized that and said, I'm not empathetic. I just need you to know that. And that sets the tone for an organization. And if you don't think in healthcare that that creates a disengaged workforce who um, are just are, are not feel they're not respected, it, it's because they know that the leadership is not empathetic. Yeah. Um, so for me, the story that I shared with you about the little boy um, was born out of an experience that I learned early in my leadership career because I'm naturally a very uh, curious person and I'm, I'm a visual learner. And I was leading in an academic medical center, a level one trauma center, a very large anesthesiology department. I was the administrative director. And within months of my accepting this role, I was charged with uh needing to put together um, an obsolescence plan for anesthesia equipment. And I'm like, I didn't even know what that meant. And I learned quickly that in, in order to anesthetize a patient, there is an, um, an anesthesia monitor, they call it, and that captures the physiological data for the patient. And then there's an anesthesia machine, which delivers the inhalation agents. And then the machines vary because you have different ventilators, depending on the type of surgical case. Uh, cardiac surgery and so forth. So I spent a lot of time observing in the OR and that set the path for me to do that to this day. And what I mean by that is the best way for me to learn of opportunities to help the team, help the patient is to put scrubs on, sneakers, whatever attire is appropriate and blend in. And I've done it for so many years, more than 20 years, 25 years. Um, the team loves it because they feel respected that, wow, you're actually here to learn. It helped me learn work workflows, the flows of medicine. It helped me learn labor distribution, supply chain opportunities, facility opportunities. I learned so much. But I obviously had a job, and my job was observing and listening. Because I wasn't a clinician, I could never touch a patient. Sure. And I could do comfort measures. So the team loved it because I'd be that person that could run and get a warm blanket. I been known to run and grab blood. I can't type and cross, but I can certainly be a delivery person. I could go to the supply room. I could go pick up bags of lactated ringers, IV solutions, and so forth. So yeah, so that story that I shared the other day, it's a story that stayed with me for many years, and I still um, have the face of that boy. Um, I was in the operating room one day, and it was the day that I took myself off my calendar. And what I mean by that is my assistant back in the day don't schedule me for anything. You know where I am. Um, but in order for me to fully get the experience, I would take call with the first call attending. And what that means in a level one, they're in-house because, you know, they don't get to go home and get paged and come back. So I would spend the night. But spending the night meant you were up all night because in a trauma center, you always have surgical patients. And we would review the cases for the day and we'd talk about which ones they thought I could benefit most from. And I would pick and choose who I was going to shadow with, but I would mix it up. So I would inevitably be in multiple surgical cases. And this one day there was a boy. I went into what they call the holding area where they're prepping, doing the informed consent with the parents and so forth. And he could see me in the background and he was very stern. Who are you? 
you're not my doctor. Don't you touch me is what he mm, said. Yeah, he was scared. And I, yes. And I introduced myself, just told him my first name. And I said, nope, I'm here to support the team and assured him that I wouldn't touch him. And um, went into the operating room and they transferred him to the surgical table. And, you know, he, he was having uh, his third surgery that day because he had had a tragic trauma accident to his hand uh, and they were trying to save his hand. And I always stood behind the anesthesia drape. Um, and that's where I was positioned and the anesthesia team was getting ready. And there was a, the attending. And then I heard a little voice and it was, it was Kevin. And he said, Ian, and the team looked at me and stepped back a little bit so I could hear him better. And I said, what? And he said, could you hold my hand? Cause he was scared. Yeah. So he didn't know what my role was, but I assured him I would. But and so we all thought that that was very special because needless to say he had one hand that he could hold my hand. So I went around the side of a table where he had his free hand and held his hand while he went to sleep. And he said, will you be here when I wake up? And I said, yes. And I was. And, mm -hmm. um, but because I spent so much time in the way that I worked, it was very easy for me to monitor his progress. I didn't need to stay in the operating room for his whole procedure. And I didn't, but I certainly knew when they rolled him out to the PACU and was there when he woke up Yeah, and was holding his hand. I was holding his hand when he went to sleep. I was holding his hand when he woke And that was important to his parents too, because I could tell them that story. And, um, you know, it's, it's an emotional story, but, but for me to learn what I loved was that I was able to help him and put him at peace for that moment. And when he woke up his parents as well, but the team, because when you're in a clinical setting, um, just like you heard a lot about in COVID, you don't always have the time for those comfort measures, Right. but nurses and doctors and scrub techs, the circulators, their hands are full. They're full with, you know, setting up IV lines and, you know, inducing a patient for anesthesia, draping a patient uh, and so forth. And that that's not their job to hold a patient's hand because they don't have time. That's not what they're there for. So so over the years, um, it, it meant that if I was working on a project for, say, operations, um, excellence and improvement, which I've done a lot of, I would go into a breast center, for example, where the radiologist was going to do an invasive procedure. And again, I'd be dressed in scrubs. The patient would have no idea. They would think I was a nurse or a medical assistant, but I'd be the one to get the warming blanket or hold their hand or when they were frightened because they didn't have a family member there for their biopsy. Hmm. So if anybody looked at it and said, wow, she has too much time on her hands. No, actually that was my job because out of that was born opportunities where I could say to the team afterwards, hey, I saw this. And when, if I asked them a question, you know, it was remarkable to me. I never asked it in a judgmental way. They knew that you have an outside pair of eyes, Ian, and thank you for coming in because you see things that we can't possibly see in here because we're so focused on doing the procedure or whatever the case may be. So the value to being, you know, within reason, because not everybody in leadership can do what I do, but, but it's very important to be accessible and available consistently where the care is being provided uh, and not just doing a check the box rounding once a week, once a day, which you hear a lot about that. I used to do it every day, all day. And, and I always kept my finger on the pulse of busy OR schedules, busy clinic schedules, whatever the case might be, because I would make sure if I could to be there at the, at the beginning of the day or the beginning of a clinic and be part of that huddle to talk about, you know, what's the day look like and what do you need? 
being embedded into the team, you see and experience things that you'll never see unless you do that. That makes you a stronger leader. That builds the credibility and the respect uh, and ultimately then the trust that you have. So if there are changes that need to happen in the, in the department, you've created a bridge. You've created uh, an opportunity where people are going to be more comfortable sharing information with you. They may tell you that they don't like a decision that's being made, that's impacting their ability to do their job well. Then you could have a dialogue with them around that. What you did is actually exemplify something. I hear this all the time where people say, my door is always open. And you know what that implies? It implies that you can come to me. But I always remind my clients that every time you hear that, that, or you say, hey, my door is always open, remind yourself that you can walk out of your your office and get close. So I love that you just brought up that. I hadn't thought about that, but um, that's why earlier I referred to the fact that I pride myself on not being an armchair manager. And so whenever I was recruited or was in a place and people would worry about office, I'd, lie, I'd say, I don't care. I just, I just, I guess I need a phone and a, a desk and a computer, although I'd prefer a laptop because I don't spend a lot of time in my office. I need a private place that's quiet if I need to interview somebody or address a human resource matter. But other than that, it, it you know, this isn't a dorm room that I'm going to decorate. I don't live here. And I used to always say to people, if I met somebody and I saw their office and it was perfectly decorated and it had, um, I don't know, a lot of souvenirs and knickknacks, I call them, that's usually assigned to me because that means their office is really, that's where they spend a lot of time. And yeah. Uh, I view that as a red flag and yeah. it's, I know it's a generalized statement, but it's, it, that's how I feel. Um, but I also want to say is that um, go back to your truth. Your question about my truth telling is that it's exactly, as you said, um, I was recruited in that same anesthesia department um, with a, a spreadsheet of people that needed to go quote unquote. Right. And I just got to know each of these people. Some of them were physicians, nurses, administrative support and whatnot. They trusted me so much. They actually told me how bored they were or they told me what was wrong with the system. They did things that in the previous administration, they would have been vulnerable and felt that they would have been uh, their position would have been eliminated. And I found out that uh, there were system issues. It wasn't the people. And so that's why, you know, I've recently competed uh, another, completed another course to put in my toolbox, um, so to speak, um, on systems-based training, which is exactly how I have led over the course of my career. And that is with the workforce from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. And I've been involved with many, many, many organizations that have done lean transformations, change management, which I've been involved with. But there are a variety of reasons why we didn't necessarily have success and we certainly didn't have sustainability, but you, you need to have the trust and respect of the workforce and, and in the voice of those people who are going to tell you what the solutions are because they're actually in the ICU every day or they're in the OR every day or in the clinic. Um, and one of the compliments that I got many, many times that I resonates with me still, and it's it's actually valid. Is we can take no from you, Ian, because we know you get it. You do your homework, you do your research, and when you come back, you don't say no just because you're an administrator. You say no, and you educate us on why we can't do that today. But you hmm. give us alternatives and solutions. There's a big difference. What do you say to people when they tell you 
that they don't have time to go and meet. They don't have time to go get close. They don't have whatever. I, I hear that as an excuse. I know it's a real issue, but what is your response when people tell you they don't have time? Well, first off, I'll say that I my leadership style is very different than a lot of people that I've led at my level or above. Um, and so it's not my place to tell them, you know, how to lead. I lead by example. I am proud to say that when people saw the effect of the workforce and the engagement, I've had human resource people say, oh, my God, we wish everybody had the engagement with the team that you do when it comes to those surveys that you need to do. And I say, well, I, I don't do it for survey results. I do it because that's actually how I lead. But, oh, by the way, well, you can get this from other leaders. You can just require them to uh, or, or recruit people that have the philosophy that I have. But it was never my job to go out and and have those leaders um, lead my way. When I've done consulting engagements and I've had to go in and do change management, again, when you're hired by a consulting firm or a hospital, you know they're the client. That was always a challenge with me because philosophically, they might have led a project different than I would. And the biggest difference would be I would spend that time engaging with the team to have them to earn their respect and trust so that when we needed to go in and do some, you know, heavy lifting, they'd come along. And I, and they would also express in their voice, the opportunities for improvement, which is what you need versus me telling them. And, and that's a big difference. It's not going in and telling somebody what to do. Um, it's asking sometimes, even if you know what a good solution, never discuss what the solution is. Um, but so the other thing that I want to point out that I use this often um, is I, over the years, I've had leaders that I've worked for that I would do things. And I had somebody come to me one day, he goes, you know, you come to me for years with stuff. And I never know why you give me these articles or why you send me this stuff. And I would say to him, you don't need to do anything with this today. Just know that I gave you this, read it. Someday you may need it. And he, this would be like a chair of a department who would come to me and say, oh my gosh, I learned this today. And now I, now I understand why you give me this information. I'm like, look at, you need to keep your finger on the pulse. And that's my job. So the analogy I make on the finger on the pulse for me, I keep my finger on the pulse on the team, what they need to do for the patients, the vagaries, you know, the schedule, the, the demographic of the patients and so forth. Because if I can keep my finger on the pulse on the care teams, the clinical teams, the administrative team that supports the care teams, then I'm going to be better able to indirectly support and keep my finger on the pulse on the patient because they're the ones that keep the finger on the pulse on the patient, sometimes literally. And what I used to always say to them, especially a doctor, look, you can go get your MBA a whole heck of a lot quicker than I can become a surgeon. Um, but a lot of what I'm doing for you or telling you has nothing to do with an MBA. It's just common sense. I feel like, you know, this is so good when you, and I love the, the use of the phrase, keep your finger on the pulse. Uh, um, I think one of the myths that I've run into is that to keep your finger on the pulse is going to require hours of time. I think the truth of it actually is, is that it requires far less time to do that well than most people think. But what it does take is a commitment to being very consistent with it. And so that doesn't mean this week you're really good at it, but for the next three weeks, because of your, you have so many things going on that you don't do that. That inconsistency works against you more so than trying to spend, you know, like ample amounts of time. I think what it really is is, uh, um, you know, thousands of little touch points. Uh, they might be five seconds. They might be putting a hand on somebody's shoulder who's having a rough day. 
uh, it might be in a, a word of encouragement. It might be a small five minute conversation on uh, a way that maybe they could, uh, that they're struggling with. And here's some thoughts on a ways to do it better. And you're helping them through it. You're coaching and guiding and mentoring. What, what's your take on that? Do, do you see some of the same things, Ann? I do. And that's why when you were asking me about empathy and I listed off the uh, characteristics that I, that personify me that are important to me, empathy, compassion, and I'm passionate about my work, loving the workforce, kindness. I did mention consistency. It is consistency. And consistency doesn't mean that every morning at 8 a.m. you're going to see Anne. But I was so consistent with my physical presence that if somebody didn't see me for a day, I would get a text message or something and say, you okay? We haven't seen you. And I'd say to them, do you need something? No, but we just look forward to seeing you to kick off our day. It didn't mean that they couldn't function and do their work. It was just that sometimes it was just checking in to say, hi, how are you? You're not delegating anything to them. You are, and literally, as you said, touching them on the shoulder to say, hey, good morning. How was your night? Or what's today look like? You you get everything you need, that kind of thing. Um, the, The physical presence and the touch points are extremely, extremely important. A series that I didn't mean to start, but I have started, and I call it Words Spoken By, one that I wrote recently, uh, talked about working in a large organization that had these uh, gemba walks that leaders had to participate in daily, and we had to lead them weekly. And leading them meant that we had to go off-site in the ambulatory sites, and sometimes it would take two hours to do that. And in that story, I talked about how the person I reported to one of the steps in rules of engagement per se was I was supposed to be out in the lobby to greet the team that was coming into my practice that day. But I was already at the KPI board where we present. And the reason why I was at the board was because I had a huddle with the team. I had people that called out. I didn't have a nurse manager that day to reallocate. So what was important to me to get the team going for the patients was to stand up on a step stool on a whiteboard and write out what nurse was going to go where. I had to reallocate all the staff, talk to the surgeons and and in a huddle and say, Dr. So-and-so, you're not going to have X, Y, Z nurse. And, and, you know, do that. That was what was important to make the place run. Instead, I was called out because I wasn't standing in the lobby to, you know, so if you get my point, it's, Mm. it's, um, Knowing where you need to be. And when you keep your finger on the pulse for the team, that's a classic example of what you need to do to make sure that we're there for our patients uh, and and being nimble. But sometimes you can work in a culture where it's very uh, top down. That was an example of that. Yeah. Very authoritarian. And that's where I felt that truth is very important because I would speak up. And I would say to somebody, just what I just said to you, this is what I was doing. And and of course, not right at that moment, but this is why I was doing when I was doing it. And we're here for the patients. And if I had to do it over again, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm not Mm going to show up in a lobby and check a box. I'm not a check a box person. I am there for the team who's there for the patients. Because when you sign up for a job in healthcare, it's pretty simple. That's kind of a good segue. It's very clear to me and to our listeners now at this point that, and you've done the job. You're going in as a consultant who has done the job. You have made the mistakes. Um, you've seen the mistakes that have been made. You have this real life experience. There is, and there's a big difference between um, reading and learning these things 
and then actually going through them. And it gives you such tremendous perspective. Uh, so what, what comes to mind about this value of having this real life experience that's helping you now be a better um, coach, consultant, uh, mentor for the, the, the clinicians and uh, the, the facilities that you're working in? Well, so so one of the challenges that we have in healthcare, you read and hear about this a lot too, is the silencing that goes on. And what I mean by that is um, often you could work in an organization where the workforce feels that they, nobody's listening to them. So throughout the pandemic, we hear about that a lot. You know, the nurses, we have high turnover of nurses. Um, we always have I've had a nursing shortage, but now it's... Um, it's uh, exponentially gotten worse. Same thing with physicians. We hear a lot about burnout of, of clinicians as a whole. And a lot of it is because uh, they often have lacked, felt that they lacked the, the, res the support and respect uh, from people in leadership roles who didn't listen to them. And now some of them feel it's too late. And so to save themselves, they're leaving the bedside and pursuing other areas of healthcare, or they're leaving healthcare altogether. And where I'm on the journey right now, as I speak to consulting firms, is making sure that their visions and values are aligned with mine, because I'm not a check-the-box person. When I look at a scope of work and someone reaches out to me, it's important that, yes, I can do the work, of course I can, but how am I going to go about engaging the workforce and doing the implement implementation is it authentic and more importantly is it going to be sustainable uh, so that's what one of the reasons that i stepped back and i pursued another training to be able to have another tool in my toolbox to work with a team of people throughout the country to be able to go into organizations that invited us to do the bottoms up transformation on systems-based work I'll go in any place that wants um, to be able to have somebody like myself to work with them as a team. Because the other thing I'll say this that I really pride myself on, I can go in anywhere and make a difference because I don't feel it's my way or the highway. I respect and understand demographics play a big role, meaning the demographic for running a hospital in Alabama is going to be very different than Boston, very different from L.A., from Iowa. Um, the demographic of the patient and of the workforce. You have different, um, in, in different parts of the country, you have uh, different diseases that are more prominent in one region of the country than another. So I like to actually go in and look at it as, yes, I have all this experience, but you know, this is a clean slate. You know, what do you got? What's going on? And I look at it as it's fun and I'm enthusiastic because I am going to learn something also. Because every time you go into a new place that was the saying, if you've seen one hospital, you've seen one hospital because they're all different. Medical, they're all different. And if you go in with that idea and you respect it and you don't go in with, oh, I've done this before. This is how we're going to do it, which is a big mistake. Um, that's where you earn the um, trust and respect. Um, and I, like I said, I feel strongly that it has benefited me greatly by being the person that needs to go see so that's what going to the Gember is all about. Uh, I would would want and hope that organizations um, would impart that on their leadership, but have it be authentic in the way that I do it, meaning it's not you need to do this once a week or whatever the case may be. It's actually part of your job. It's part of who you are. And when you do it and you see the benefits of it, um, you your, your retention of your team is also and your engagement of your workforce is significantly higher when your engagement is authentic. And I have felt that and experienced that in 
areas where others couldn't recruit and didn't have robust teams and people would say, how do you do it? And the conversation would be just like I just explained to you in this 30 minutes or so. Uh, now, you're using a term for me that I'm not familiar with, but I, I understand you're talking about rounds there and the value of that. So what a minute ago you just said drives engagement. Can you repeat what you said a moment ago? Being able to accomplish a, a, a team where you have mutual respect and trust. I respect and trust them and they respect and trust me. And that means sometimes being brutally honest saying, Hey, you're really to a nurse work that you're really, really good at this clinically and you're this and you're this, but then you coach them in terms of their delivery or how they might be a little harsh on say a medical yeah. assistant that might not understand something clinically. Cause I've had those conversations, but it's being real with them. Yes. Setting a tone where you respect them professionally, they respect you. You're not there to be your their friend, but you're there for them. And the engagement is is I, I mean, th they'll do anything for you because they they love the fact that they're being respected and supported and it's endless. And what I love is and I have so many examples of this in my career. And I said, you know, I, I'm not even a mother, but I felt like a proud mother. You know, you've done something right when your team comes to you and says, and, you know, I, I had a situation many years ago where one of the administrative assistants uh, transferred out to another department. Um, they said, we knew that the finances are challenging in this hospital and you'll probably be pressured to eliminate that position. So we met amongst ourselves and we divvied up her responsibilities and we're going to present you with a plan on how we, they didn't ask for a raise. They didn't ask for anything. They said, you're so good to us that we wanted to make it easier for you. And here's what we think. I mean, to me that, you know, it, it was very touching, but the lesson in that was them saying, you're so good to us. It's the least we could do. So you wouldn't have to have the difficult conversation. Isn't that, is, you said, yeah, you, a couple of, uh, of sentences ago, you said, you know, they'll do anything for you. It, but that's because there's reciprocity involved in that because they've seen you do the same for them. And that right there, that is an important takeaway. I mean, I just love to latch on to little things like that when I hear somebody explain it, because what seems, I think what can seem normal or typical or obvious to, to some is like new and like, oh, that's a huge wow moment. Uh, so if, if that's the kind of culture that you want to cultivate, uh, if you want to get those things then you have to give them and you probably have to give them tenfold, maybe more to see it, you know, in return. And that's not also what you're doing it for. It's not, it's not so you get something in return. It It's much more um, uh, altruistic in nature, I suppose, from that standpoint, it's, it's because it's the right thing to do. I love that piece. Well, and, and just to uh, clarify my comment about the do anything, I would never ask them to do anything that was, um, inappropriate or that I was taking advantage of, let's say my perceived power over them, it would always be something appropriate. But the other thing that um, I used to do often, and I believe in, and I would, you know, have to articulate this to staff because previous people before me managed very differently. I'd have to give them permission to do what was right. And what I mean by that is this, they would see me go sit in a waiting room with a frightened patient and bring that patient into a private room off in my office. Uh, you know, an elderly woman that was going to have a biopsy, but didn't have family. Uh, and I would, I, I would uh, schedule work with that patient to a schedule to make myself available. So I could be there for that procedure because they didn't have a daughter or whatever the case may be in the area. I staff would see me and do this all the time and say, 
that's so wonderful that you do that. And I'd say to them, if we can afford the staffing and you can have someone cover the phones, you're, you're welcome to do this as well. I will never question you. Uh, I will never question you. If you're late for work because you found a wayward patient lost in the building that needed a wheelchair assistance because they're struggling, uh, which I used to do often, um, I will never question you. That's our job. Oh, and, I love it. And so those people that I work with, you know, if we had a busy clinic and some of the clinics that I ran in oncology, uh, we had some pretty sick patients that came in um, on a stretcher and they were palliative pages, patients and sometimes at the end stage of their life. And they were, imagine this, a busy, busy waiting room, 30, 40 people and everybody's frightened. And so I would know that patient was coming on a stretcher because I would know the schedule. So I would be the one to make sure because I had the extra pair of hands that I would find with that ambulance crew a room, even in a busy clinic. It might've been an ultrasound room. It might've been some room that we weren't gonna see the patient so that we could bring that ambulance team with that patient into a private place until they saw the doctor. Because imagine being a scared patient on a stretcher in a waiting room where you're high above in a stretcher and you're cold and you're frightened and maybe you're in pain and you've got 30, 40, 50 sets of eyes. Um, so I have a lot of stories like that because I, that's that's what I would do. Now, someone might say, well, how did you do your job? Well, I'd say, well, that was my job. That actually mm. made my job easier. Yeah. That, that is a great kind of um, closing point, I think, here is you make your – you make the things that are important a priority or, or whatever you say is a priority are the things that become important. And, you know, you, you mentioned a few things, like if you are late to your, your shift because you were helping somebody, that's part of your job. That's what we want here at, in this facility. That's a culture that, that um, it, it's too often, it's too easy when you're so busy and things are, you know, strained and, and you're, essentially walking fast, let alone almost jogging from, uh, you know, a wing to a wing in a, in a facility, um, uh, to be able to recognize and see the needs, uh, man, this is, uh, this is just incredible to hear, you know, talk about those things. And I believe that's a, that's an area that healthcare has to, um, revolutionize in. I, I, I assume you see that and, and feel very strongly about that. Well, I, I do. And, and one of the things that I have great empathy for and respect is now more than ever, because the effects of the pandemic, which right. is an already strained healthcare system, you know, shrinking reimbursements, uh, people are living longer. Uh, and, and our workforce, we've had um, labor shortages in certain parts of the country for nurses and medical assistants and physicians in some cases. Yeah. Uh, and then the pandemic has only exacerbated that. Um, so, but one of the twisted gifts, I say it's twisted because we've <laughs> lost a lot of lives in the pandemic. A lot of yeah. people lost their lives. A lot of families um, have lost loved ones. And then we have those that are sick today still. So that, but the twisted gift is it's shown the light on uh, how fractured the health system is, but how, the goodness, the goodness of, of the workforce and the work that they've, they've been doing for decades. But where I have empathy for leadership is that it's easy to point the finger and, and uh, blame. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of good people out there in leadership that probably could tell similar same stories to me, but they have so much on their plate right now. Their bandwidth, they're paralyzed. Even the yes. best people that were perceived as the high performers that could step out and do wonderful things, um, 
they're so paralyzed. Many of them are wearing two and three hats because the turnover and leadership and so forth. Um, and, and, and what they're doing to no fault of their own is not working. And so imagine those people going home. I know that they don't um, go home and they don't sleep well. I know many of them personally and professionally. We speak sure. every day. And uh, I, I just, my, my hope for healthcare is that we grow and build leadership teams of people who are empathetic, start with the empathy, who are compassionate, who actually really like people, if not love people, and keep their team at their center of the work that they do. Because if you make your care team, and I say care team because that means everybody, care team is also the environmental services people that keep our hospitals and our clinics uh, clean and so forth. It's it's every discipline that supports the team to be able to take care of the patients. So if you keep your finger on the pulse on the team, this isn't some you know buzzword. It, it, it's just something I say because it's how I work. It's how I can best describe my approach to being patient-centric is by being care team-centric. I love it. And um, how can people reach out and get in touch with you? This is, uh, just tell a little bit about your business, who you want to work with, um, the things that you're helping them do, and, and obviously, you know, what's the best way to get in contact with you? So the best way right now, um, in the absence of me having formally launched my website, would be through LinkedIn. Um, and through LinkedIn, uh, you will be able to see a little bit more about my background and the work that I do. But also, it gives my email address, even gives my cell phone number. People can reach out to me by through LinkedIn, uh, through direct messaging, or through um, email. And if they're not on LinkedIn, I'll just add this real quick. I will put your contact information in the show notes. So if you don't have a LinkedIn oh, account, you can still yes. get uh, in touch with Ann. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. And I'm, I'm open to that. Um, and, and again, I mean, I'm a lifelong learner like you are and so many of us are. And that's why I believe in the uh, leadership. We're followers. We're constantly learning. And um, yes, so I would welcome that. Well, it has been a real pleasure. Uh, to talk with you. I feel like there's a lot that we left that we could talk about. I, I know from conversations you and I have had, I, uh, from posts that you've had, that there's um, there's so many layers to all of this. Uh, I would welcome you back in the future at any point, but uh, I also want to just wish you well. And um, I want to thank our listeners today for, if, if you've um, you know gotten through this episode, uh, I'm sure the wheels are turning. If you are in the healthcare industry, um, you may see some, uh, you're feeling these things, you're seeing these things and experiencing them. So if you're looking for somebody to connect with and just bounce ideas that would have some objectivity, I would highly encourage you to reach out to Anne. So, Anne, any, any closing wisdom for, for the day as we wind down? Uh, so I, I will say this, through people like yourself that I've met through LinkedIn in particular, I meet with physicians and nurses more than ever, but all disciplines and administration as well. There's a lot of people out there who are looking for, you know, guidance into how to better serve their patients. And sometimes they're private practice physicians and surgeons, sometimes they're employed. But but I can't stress enough is that, I'll say it like this, we need to call a truth in healthcare and don't blame. There are so many factors of why the face of healthcare looks the way that it does in a particular organization. It, but we have to have hope. And it starts with people who go in there with a clear mind and a clear, uh, you know, set of new eyes and an energy 
partnered with that hope to say, okay, we can do better, but how we're going to do better is honestly is, is getting at the ground floor with the workforce and listening to them, gathering that emotional data, so to speak, and working with them on the solutions. And that's work that I love. Um, and sometimes you need to get into the weeds. Well, and that, that love, that passion for the work comes through. So again, thank you very much. I wish you all the best and absolutely we are going to stay in contact. Uh, thank you again for listening to this episode of lead through values. Remember these three things, conversations, create clarity, clarity produces action and action drives your results. Thank you, James. It was a pleasure.